0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering. Hello and welcome to the program. We are looking at a 14 verse text called... The Principal Aspects of the Path by Lama Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Golukpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. The three aspects Tsongkhapa refers to are renunciation, bodhicitta and wisdom, also known as emptiness, in the Mahayana tradition. In the last three programs, we've briefly gone over what these three mean. But just to recap, let's see what His Holiness the Dalai Lama says about them. His explanation comes from a short teaching on Lama Lama Tsongkhapa's text which you can find in a book called Four Essential Buddhist Commentaries if you are interested. As it was published in 1982, it is quite an old book now but you can still get it from Amazon and such like sites that sell books. His Holiness says, Renunciation is based on the attitude with which we turn our minds completely away from all wishes for samsara Uncontrollably reoccurring existence. Our attainment of liberation is dependent on having such a renunciation. Bodhicitta is the attitude or intention to attain enlightenment to benefit all limited beings, that sentient beings. The correct view of voidness is realization of the actual abiding nature of reality. Concerning the correct view or understanding of voidness of reality of non-inherent existence. It is If it is held by a mind of renunciation, it brings liberation. It brings liberation by eliminating the obscurations that prevent liberation, namely the disturbing emotions and attitudes, the mental factors that keep us bound in the compulsive existence of samsara. If the understanding of the correct view of oneness is held by a mind of bodhicitta, it eliminates as well the obscurations regarding all knowables and which prevent omniscience namely, the habits of grasping for true and inherent existence. Removing them brings the attainment of enlightenment. Therefore, a correct view of voidness is the main opponent that destroys the two sets of obscuration, and it is assisted by either renunciation or by both renunciation and bodhicitta. To take an example, when I was a boy living in South Africa, My brother, sister and I contracted a disease called bulhazia. Essentially, it's a liver fluke that lives first in snails in natural water like dams, rivers and so on. When you play in the water, even just touching it with your toe, the fluke that the snail has excreted can attach itself to you and burrow through your skin into your bloodstream. Eventually, it lands up in your liver and other organs where it lays hundreds of eggs a day, some of which will go out with your faeces. Eventually those eggs will reach the natural water where they hatch and infect snails and so the cycle continues. A cycle in cyclic existence. The disease made us lethargic and irritable and would lead to serious organ damage in due course. The treatment in those days, and we're talking about the 1960s, was at first a course of very large, very unpleasant tablets. Although these tablets were supposed to kill the parasites, the taste was terrible and the side effects of swallowing them included diarrhoea, vomiting, general weakness and just feeling ghastly. To help the tablets go down, my mother used to give us sherbet sweets, which we all loved. But of course, the sherbet sweets came to be associated with the diarrhoea, vomiting and so on and after the treatment was done, I couldn't bear the thought of sherbet sweets. Lama the head of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, has this to say about samsara. What we need to do is see all of samsara like an unbearable prison, something we can't stand being in and day and night think only of escaping from. The texts say that living in samsara we should feel as if we're sitting next to a poisonous snake. Without feeling all of samsara, the desire form and formless realms to be in the nature of suffering and having complete aversion to it, there's no way we can enter the path to liberation, no way we can escape from the ocean of samsaric suffering and its cause, delusion and karma. Therefore, the first of the three principal aspects of the path is renunciation. Now this samsaric disgust, then, is the basis for our wish to be free. With that basis, we try to understand the correct view of reality, for once we have that, all our addictions will be released and we will be free. In the meantime, we develop the mind of compassion, or bodhicitta, if we see that others are in the same predicament as ourselves. We then don't only want to be free ourselves, but also all those others as well, particularly if we can recognize them as our previous mothers who were so very kind to us. Actually, most of us should develop the mind of bodhicitta before the understanding of reality, because by meditating on reality, we can make some serious mistakes. But meditating on compassion and bodhicitta, we can't make any mistakes. So that's why when talking about these three aspects, we list them as renunciation, bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness. Now, before we continue, let's as usual set our motivation. In his commentary, his holiness spends some time on motivation, and this is what he says. We need to set a proper motivation to listen to these teachings. If we set a kind heart as our motivation, this is the source of all happiness. If we lack such a heart and instead are proud, pretentious and so on, this this will only bring unhappiness and uneasiness. The effects in future lives of whether we will be either a cultivated, gentle person or a rough, crude being will be seen in terms of our conduct in this life. Even if we do not accept the existence of future lives, yet having a kind heart, or on the other hand being coarse and crude, will bring either happiness or unhappiness in turn now. Most important is our daily conduct. Even if there were no such things as future lives, there is no harm in being gentle. It helps in our daily lives. If there are future lives, then even more so will we benefit from being gentle, kind persons. So be friendly, kind to each other, and not just in theory. We need to do so in terms of actual people and actual situations we encounter in our daily lives. This is the essence of the Dharma, and it's not difficult to follow. It's not something we go and buy in a store, but rather it's something that we practice ourselves. Look at the Chinese, for instance. They are proper objects for our compassion. They do not know what is right or wrong. They do not know the consequences of their acts. So we need to show them compassion. You yourselves, we all need to try to be kind and refined. Look at drinkers of chung, that's beer, and of alcohol. This is a very bad custom. They become drunk, raucous, crude, rude and cause much disturbance. Buddha has said that as a consequence of drinking alcohol we often commit many destructive actions of body, speech and mind. Therefore, it's not good at all to drink alcohol. The same is true with smoking. Although Buddha did not specifically proscribe it, and Buddha's teachings do not specifically mention its disadvantages, yet as we see from what Western doctors say, it's extremely dangerous for our health. If there were some particular purpose in smoking, that would be all right. But if there's none, as is mostly the case, then it's best not to. And the same is true with taking snuff and so on. It's best not to use these things at all. In such ways, by abandoning these crude types of habits, we will become increasingly more gentle a person, more cultivated and refined a person. The more we can do this, the better. If we see other gentlemen and ladies, we need to rejoice in their examples and try to become as gentle and cultivated as we can ourselves. Do you understand? Be more and more mindful to be gentle, cultivated, loving and have a warm heart. Look at the disadvantages of being crude, raucous, selfish and rough. We need always to remind ourselves of them. If we have a kind heart, this brings happiness, good fortune, health and peace of mind. This helps me a lot in my own thinking. And we're all the same. We all want happiness, so we all need to do the same. Be kind and gentle. Look at those who are coming here from Tibet. They do not harp on all the difficulties they have had in these last twenty-odd years and say how pathetic we are and feel sorry for themselves. Rather, they come here being very interested in the Dharma. We Tibetans who have been living here also need not to harbour grudges against the Chinese. We need to feel how fortunate we are to have had the opportunity to be in India and to practice the Dharma. I know many who were oppressed by the Chinese, held prisoners and... Lacking any Buddhist training, went mad with hatred and anger. So it's most important not to be angry like that, but to be cultivated and try to nurture a kind heart. It makes a huge difference at the time of our deaths. Look at Hitler. Although he was so powerful during his life, his hatred overcame him, and when he died he was so desperate and unhappy he took poison and killed himself. Stalin likewise died in a state of great fear, that Mao Tse-tung passed away in very difficult straits. Therefore, it's important to be kind and have a warm heart our entire lives. Then, when we die, we can do so with peace of mind. In all the countries to which I've been traveling, I teach exactly the same point. Whether I'm in the West or even in the Soviet Union, I tell them all to have a kind heart, be friendly towards everyone in a non-partisan fashion, be equally loving to all, Whenever I go to various places, I see people of many different races, colors, nationalities, religions, and I think we are all people. If we take the time to speak with them, we discover that everyone has the same basic human values. Everyone wants to be happy and nobody wishes to suffer. Therefore, all of us need to try to be kind and to have a good heart. So now, before we go on with the text please let's follow His Holiness's instructions and at least set a motivation dedicated to that kind and good heart. Thank you. Now, after having spent the last three programs explaining the concepts of the three principles of the path, renunciation, bodhicitta and the wisdom understanding reality, perhaps it's time to get on to the text itself. As I've said, it was composed by Lama Tsongkhapa, which means the Lama from the Onion Valley, also known as Jai Tsongkapa or J. Rinpoche, who lived in the late 14th and early 15th centuries. He was a great scholar and practitioner. It's said that he did extensive retreats with millions of prostrations and other purification practices. He left 18 volumes of teachings. For Westerners, probably the most important one being the Lam Rim, the graduated path, also known as the Great Treatise on the Stages of the Path to Enlightenment. If you are interested in reading it in English, you can get it in three volumes from Snowline Publications or many of the online booksellers like Amazon or the Book Depository. That name again, the Great Treatise on the Stages of the Path to Enlightenment. Tsongkhapa founded Ganden, one of the three great monasteries of the Gluk tradition, which is now established in South India, close to my own monastery, Drepung. Actually, a special lama is selected every seven years to the position known as the Ganden throne holder or Ganden Tripa. This lama is both the abbot of Ganden monastery and the real spiritual head of the Galuk tradition, although people often mistakenly think His Holiness the Dalai Lama is. Tsongkhapa was a master of monastic discipline and we are told that he repurified the Buddhist teachings and practices which had degenerated somewhat by the time he came along. In fact, the word guluk, which is applied to the tradition he founded, means virtuous ones, and it is a special mark of the guluk that it is the tradition most strict in Tibetan Buddhist monastic discipline. Tsongkhapa based much of his work on the teachings of Atisha, the Indian master who wrote a lamp on the path to enlightenment, especially for the Tibetans. So that's a short background to the author. Now let's get to the first part of the text, which Lama Tsongkhapa first taught to Tsaka Onpo Ngawondakpa, one of his students in Eastern Tibet. And that's why the text ends addressed to his son. I bow down to the Venerable Spiritual Masters. I will explain as well as I am able the essence of all the teachings of the conqueror the path praised by the conquerors and their spiritual children, the entrance for the fortunate ones who desire liberation. Listen with clear minds, you fortunate ones, who direct your mind to the path pleasing to the Buddha and strive to make good use of leisure and opportunity without being attached to the joys of cyclic existence. Now it was customary for the Indian and Tibetan authors to open their work with a homage, a pledge or promise to compose, and an encouragement to the reader to study and practice. So here in the first line, Lama Tsongkhapa pays homage to the venerable spiritual masters. Now this is in line with a graduated path, the Lam Rim, in which the first meditation encourages us to see our spiritual master as a Buddha. But Geshe Sonam Rinchen, in his commentary, says Tsongkhapa's homage should be read in terms of all his teachers. He says, His obeisance not to one but to many teachers may be taken as an expression of veneration for all his personal mentors, from those who taught him to read and write to those who gave him the profoundest philosophical instruction. From a Buddhist point of view, all our teachers are esteemed because of their kindness in imparting knowledge to us. I must smile when I read this and think of what teachers today have to go through in our everyday classrooms. Often it seems that students instead of respecting their teachers, set out to see how much they can disrupt what is being taught. And yet, if it's true what Henry Adams said, that a teacher affects eternity, he can never tell where his influence stops, it's all the more important that we should be careful with our teachers. Certainly, if we want liberation or enlightenment, we can't act like the worst of schoolchildren. In her commentary on this text, Pema Chodron makes another point. She says, The purpose of bowing down to the spiritual masters is because when we begin something, we want to be able to finish it. We don't want to have any problems along the way, any obstructions to finishing it. In this case, when Lama Tsongkhapa was writing the text, he wanted to be able to write it and finish it without having difficulties along the way. What clears the difficulties is this. By bowing, by showing our respect, and our homage to all of the great practitioners that came before us, from our own immediate teacher through the lineage of teachers back to the Buddha himself. The purpose of bowing was to eliminate any obstacles to composing the text. The reason that here prostration or homage is offered to the spiritual masters is because realizing the three principal aspects of the path is going to depend on learning them from our spiritual masters, which means learning them from the Buddha, because all these teachings are traced back to the Buddha. So this homage is a way of paying homage to the Buddha himself and showing that the teachings come from him. It also shows that our realizations of the path depend upon our studying the teachings of the Buddha and learning them from qualified teachers. Then she goes on to say that the fact that Lama Tsongkhapa, a very great master in his own right, bows down to those who come before him also shows modesty. She says, That sets a very good example for us as spiritual practitioners to always respect and bow down to all those practitioners who came before us and by whose kindness the teachings still exist today. It's because they study the teachings and practice them and preserve the teachings that they've existed for these 2,500 years. We can just kind of show up and stroll in and have this whole wealth of the Dharma instead of seeing our present opportunity as something we're entitled to because we're filled with arrogance or instead of seeing our present opportunity as something inherently existent that it's always been there let's recognize its dependent nature and our great fortune let's respect all of those back to the time of the buddha upon whose kindness and wisdom we depend for me also just saying at the beginning i bow down to the spiritual masters it makes me think of Well, what would it have been like to hear this directly from the Buddha? What is contained here is the essence of what the Buddha taught. And then Geshe Sonam Rinchen also writes, Tsongkhapa chooses to pay homage to spiritual teachers because without them we can develop neither great nor small insights, but with their help we can first develop and then strengthen and enhance the three principal realizations discussed here. He goes on to claim that no one has ever gained high realizations just by reading books without the guidance of a spiritual teacher. Lama Tsongkapa himself in the great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment goes through the qualities that a spiritual master should possess, taking as his source Maitreya's ornament for the Mayana Sutras. Geshe Sonam Rinchen uses the same source and it's his translation that I quote here. The spiritual teacher is subdued, calm, very peaceful, with surpassing qualities, persevering, rich in learning, with understanding of suchness, skilled in communication, compassionate, undiscouraged, and steadfast. Now let's just look at those qualities a little closer. Subdued means that the teacher is well controlled in the actions of body, speech, and mind. This control is achieved by closely observing the vows of personal liberation, that's the precepts of a lay person, but particularly the vows of a monk or nun, as well as the bodhisattva and tantric vows. A teacher is calm because of their training in concentration, so their mind is not easily taken over by distractions, and also very peaceful because the training and wisdom they have gone through counteracts the disturbing emotions that would cause, cause turmoil. Then the phrase, with surpassing qualities, indicates that the teacher should have greater qualities than the student. If the student is more knowledgeable or better behaved than the teacher, how can the student learn anything from that particular teacher? The description, persevering, shows that the teacher never gets tired of teaching and explaining the Dharma. And, of course, being rich in learning means that the teacher should know most of Buddha's teachings inside out. Suchness is another word for emptiness, the Mayana word for the way reality exists. It is empty of any inherent, independent and permanent existence. So the spiritual teacher should have a fine understanding of this. Geshe Sonam Rinchen says it can be directly or by mental image or even just by correct supposition. Definitely any good teacher has to be skilled in passing on what they are teaching to the student Even in an ordinary classroom situation. Otherwise, how can a teacher know what the student needs and how to best provide it? I remember how one teacher emptied a classroom in just a couple of lessons when I was trying to learn Tibetan at the Tibetan Library and Archives in Dharamsala in India. We at first had quite a good teacher, a monk, who was obviously quite experienced teaching Westerners. But he got an invitation to visit Switzerland and one of the replacement teachers was a nun who I think had only taught Tibetan youngsters. She came in and told us, you don't ask questions, you just do what I tell you to do. Well, you know what Westerners are like. We want to understand what we're doing. Our education systems have moved quite far from the rote learning that still happens in the monasteries and Tibetan schools. As I said, that teacher managed to empty a class of around 20 students in just a couple of lessons. They just went away and stayed away. And that's not the sign of a good teacher. Perhaps she should have taken time to find out how her students learnt before trying to impose a system for baby monks on somewhat sophisticated Western spiritual seekers. And then, to continue with the qualities we have to look for in a teacher, the Sutra says the spiritual guide should also be compassionate. That is, not teaching out of a wish for thanks or fame or material gain or anything like that. Instead, the guide, understanding how uncomfortable ignorance makes the student, should have the overriding intention to eliminate that ignorance and put knowledge and wisdom and well-being in its place, even if the student is unruly or stubborn. The teacher's concern and desire to guide must be steadfast, no matter how badly the student behaves. Well now, considering all that, you may well say, Wow, where on earth would I find such a teacher? Someone who's subdued, calm, very peaceful, with surpassing qualities, persevering, rich in learning, with understanding of suchness, skilled in communication, compassionate, undiscouraged and steadfast. That is virtually impossible. And yes, there are not many teachers in the world who have all those qualities. And when we do find them, they usually have hundreds of students clamoring for their attention or they live thousands of miles away. Geshe Sanam Rinchen says that even if we can't find a teacher with all those qualities, we should try to find one with some of them. Not only should you ascertain that your potential teacher possesses the knowledge you seek, he writes, you must also be convinced of his or her trustworthiness and that you could enter into an enduring relationship with that person. Your teacher should be more interested in spiritual than secular matters since this will encourage you to follow suit, more concerned with future lives than about this life and intent on helping students rather than on accumulating wealth or becoming well-known. And then, if the student wants to really progress, he or she must also have certain qualities. In the yogic deeds of bodhisattvas, Arya Deva says students should be unprejudiced, intelligent and interested. And again, Kishisanam Amrenshan tells us, Promising students are open-minded and unprejudiced. They are not attached to their own views or culture, nor are they hostile to others' views. The intelligence allows them to differentiate between valuable instructions and those which only appear good. If in addition to this they are enthusiastic and persevering, It bodes well for their progress. Without intelligence, you may mistake your teachers' and fellow students' good qualities for faults or vice versa. Even if you have the intelligence to perceive your teachers' and fellow students' positive qualities correctly, prejudice may prevent you from admitting the truth. Prejudice is a great hindrance to understanding reality and attaining the peace of nirvana. Without true interest and the enthusiasm to translate what you learn into practice, intelligence and lack of bias are of limited value. You also need respect and faith. Actually, it's said that Lama Tsongkhaba's main teacher was Manjushri, the meditational deity that embodies the Buddha's wisdom. The Lama came into this life already very highly accomplished, but it's very doubtful whether ordinary people like myself could find a spiritual teacher like Manjushri. Evidently, Lama Tsongkhapa saw many visions of Manjushri and took many teachings from him. Geshin Sonam Rinchen says the reason most of us don't have visions like Lama Tsongkhapa is that because our minds are so muddied with impurities and karmic obscurations. If we do strong purification practices and so on, such teachers might appear to us in dreams or even during our meditation. However, the kind of vision Lama Tsongkhapa had was much more vivid as if Manjushi was there right before him, appearing to his senses like another person. Most of us will probably have to practice for many lives before getting to that level of realization. And now with that, we'll have to say goodbye for another week. Thanks for joining the program today. Please be with us again next week. As we go, please dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. May you have a wonderful week.